Hey, let's open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where we left off last week. Today we'll continue on the same subject we started last week with chapter 8, because chapter 8 and chapter 9 go together. It's just it's just too many verses to take at one time. I didn't want to leave out anything because it may take another 12 years before we get back to the subject of giving and the money. So we, we only talk when the scripture talks about it, that's when we talk about it. If, if scripture and at that point we're not it, we just don't talk about money. Uh, so it might be a long time before we get back to this. So we want to make sure we at least be thorough. And if you ever need to go back to the, the tapes or the, in this case, ooh, that's a backdating tapes, uh, back to the electronic means and listen to the teachings, you can certainly do that. That's Tapes. You can see when I grew up learning the word, it was all about tapes. We were just devouring tapes to, to learn and grow. But today we're going to continue the grace of giving. This is part two of this. If you remember, we saw some key indicators or some evidence of a believer who was given rightly, giving the way the Lord would want you to give, the giving by grace, the grace of giving. And we saw that it starts with the fact that if you are a believer and if you're giving by grace, the grace of giving, it starts with and it requires a surrendered life to the Lord. You're not able to give uh, by grace if you're not a surrendered life to the Lord as, a, as your Lord and Master. It's not, it's not possible. Because your flesh and your, your self-desires, your self-focus and your self work all that will, will absolutely be a barrier for you to be able to give the way the Lord would want you to give, as we saw last week. And, but it starts with that surrendered life to the Lord that is motivated by grace, while giving by faith and faithfully giving to your Lord. Those are key indicators. Those are evidences that you are actually giving by the giving, grace of giving because the only way you can do that is if you're surrendered to the Lord and you're do, motivated by the fact that you've been shown so much grace and that you are by faith, not by sight, because I assure you many of us look at our bank accounts and we look by sight and go, how could we ever give, right? Or how are we going to make it through the month? Or how are we going to pay for those bills? There's a lot of things that come up if we go by sight. But God says, go by faith, and you then faithfully give. And you watch how I will provide and work through your life. That is how it works. But it's, it first takes, it starts with taking a step of faith. You have to take faith to do this uh, because of that. This results in one's life. There's a result. There's, a, there's fruit that comes from it through this new pattern of grace giving that you find yourself doing. So regardless of life circumstances, you still give by grace. You freely willing to give as the Lord leads because you want to be good stewards of the resources that God has given you. So you want to please God. I want to be a good steward. So Lord, how do you want me to take the money that you've given me, the resources you've given me, my time, how do you want me to redistribute that out for your kingdom that will please you, that will honor you and glorify you in what I do? But that's freely willing to give as the Lord leads as a good source. While giving as Jesus gave with no hidden agendas, no strings attached, and by giving by faith and faithfully giving. So those are the results that comes from the grace of giving. 
Now today in chapter 9, we'll see some additional key factors that you can take note of that Paul talks to and obviously is teaching the, the Corinthian believers and those who are obviously, lean, uh, God has brought these words to the paper so that all of us can learn even today and into the future. God wants us to give back to him what he gave to us first. And that was very helpful for as a believer and you're giving back to the Lord when you're ready to give. Just remember, it is his money first. He just graciously gave you some money. Now the question is, what are you going to do with his money? And the question always comes is, is not is not so much how or how much, but how does God want us to give? Well, we're going to see it today that he starts here in verse 1 of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, now concerning the ministering to the saints. Now, it starts off by ministering to the saints. So first of all, we know that in verse 1 here, chapter 9, that God wants to use the resources for the minister to other saints, to help those in need, to help to provide for what God wants to do in and through his body uh, of believers. And it's important that we keep that in perspective, obviously, that that's certainly what he's talking to the the Corinthians here about is that we're this is a ministry this is a means of, of of ministering to to serve others as God leads now it is super uh how do you say this word super uh superfluous for me to write to you for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Ma uh, uh, Macedonians that Achaia was ready to a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So he says there, now we're going to ministering to the saints here. It is not, I recognize here is not needed. I recognize that is, I don't need to say this to you as believers, but for me to write to you that I know your willingness. So I know I shouldn't even have to mention this in the letter. But by the willingness, your willingness, of, and about what I boast of you to others. So I know you're willing to want to give and help those in Jerusalem. To help them because they're suffering down there. They don't have money. They don't have the resources. They're not able to eat. They're really suffering. We, I know you're willing. I know you have a, a, at least a thought that you want to help. And I actually went to the churches in the northern part of Greece, the Macedonian churches, the Philippi and, and, uh, and Berea and, and uh, Thessalonica, and I told them that you are willing and wanting to do a good thing for the Jews, Jewish believers down there in Jerusalem, and I, they're ready to give that. Now in Achaia, that's the Corinth, that's where, where he's writing to, the Corinthian believers there in Achaia, that's the region, the southern part of Greece, where Corinth is, said a year ago you promised and you have this willingness and this zeal, this enthusiasm to, make, to, to bring a relief effort to gather money among the, the Corinthian believers, which they had money, they weren't suffering, they had a lot of resources. It was a rich church. Now the Macedonians, if you remember last week, they were very, very poor. 
They were suffering. They were just like the, maybe not, maybe as bad as the Jerusalem believers, but they were suffering. But that didn't hinder them under the circumstances that they were living. They didn't sit there and go, oh, we don't have any money. We're suffering. Let just the Corinthian church do all the work. They're the ones that got all the money. They're the big church on the hill there. Look at all the pomp and circumstance that they have. Look at those huge orchestras and, and you know, thousands of people in their church. Let them do all the giving to whoever's in need. See, that's not how we're to think. Macedonians, no, 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 we can barely, we're going to pull together whatever God has provided for us and put on our hearts. We want to be part of this because we know it's a blessing. We know it's, it's, it's good and it's right to give even if we only have a little. Now think about that, that Paul, by going back to the Macedonians, told them and stirred them up because of the zeal and the willingness of the Corinthian believers saying a year ago that they wanted to contribute. It stirred them up to want to take their own collection for the Jewish believers. But that's how it works. You see, Paul right now is in Philippi. He sits, he's linked up with Titus. And all this is coming about when he's writing the second letter to send back to the, uh, the Corinthians there in Corinth and to tell them about what's going on. Now, if you remember, he's wrote about this in chapter 8, but he also wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. So if you take a look at these two verses and you sit there and say, God, you know, Paul says here, I know your willingness I know that I boast about you to others of what you were going to do. It's been a year. You have this enthusiasm, this zeal that actually stirred up even the Macedonians who didn't have anything to actually contribute. But the question is, is why did the Corinthian Christians who were seemed to be willing, why did Paul seem to still have to feel like he had to write it in the letter? Now, some commentators will tell you, he was being sarcastic. I don't see it that way. I see that he's recognizing they started well, in at least in their minds, that they wanted to give. But for some reason, something was hindering them to give, to follow through with what they said they were going to do. And I always know, even in my own life, and watching and ministering and, and counseling others around this topic, many times it's just the enemy that keeps you from following through with the will, the goodwill of doing, of giving to God's work. The enemy puts these things in your minds that will just hinder you to keep you from doing, from blessing. Because remember, giving is a form of worship. So why wouldn't the enemy try to stop you and I from giving? Because that means we would not be showing, we wouldn't be worshiping our Lord. We would actually, it hinders us because God has put the giving in place to help us to die of self. And so the more you don't give and follow through with what God's asking you to do, remember it's the Lord, it's the Lord that's leading you, then you become more selfish. You become more, less worship. And more focused on self. And putting your eyes on the situation at hand. You go by sight and not by faith. And see, God wants us to live by faith. That's what I believe. This is what God is, Paul is stirring them up and reminding them to encourage them gently 
through the fact that you said, and I've actually told others about what you're about to do, you need to follow through, overcome the enemy, overcome whatever barriers, overcome whatever's in your head that's stopping you from doing what God has put on your heart to do. But follow through. It was like an inspiration, inspiring way of encouraging the Corinthian Christians to really be ready and willing to give. Now, while Christians must not compete with each other in the service of, of, of their, for Christ, they ought to, as we see in Scripture, Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. As long as it's not competition. I don't like competition within the church. It's never good. It brings division. But by you being faithful and God seeing that God is doing a work through your life, it will stir up love and good works from other people watching your life. Not because you're looking for credit, not for the fact you're looking for attention, but it's going to be obvious God is doing a work through your life, and that will stir you up to do good things. It will bring that zeal in someone's life because when you know God is working through your life and God is blessing you and God is using you in the things... You cannot be not be enthusiastic about being in fellowship. You can't be not enthusiastic about doing what God's called you to do and seeing him miraculously working through your life. And people are going to see it regardless if you say or do anything. They're going to see your life and say, that is a spirit-filled life. And they're being led by the spirit. They're filled with the spirit. Man, I want that for my life. Doesn't it? An amen somewhere from someone who recognizes that is how God works. It's not by force. It's not by coercion. It is not by guilt trip. It is purely watching God work. And you just go with the flow with what the spirit of God is doing. And it just, you go with the, with the flow. It's just an awesome, awesome thing. A zealous Christian can be the means of stirring up and motivating people to pray, to serve, to witness, and to give for the purpose of God. In verse 3, yet Paul says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest in some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. So, again, Paul felt like, I know I didn't think I needed to, really, I didn't need to write about this, but I'm going to write about it. Because I just need to make sure you know. That's what pastors do. Do you know that? Sometimes pastors repeat themselves just because God, Jesus repeated himself, did he not, to his disciples over and over and over? Because God's how God uses to people to help remind you of what your intentions are. But you just need to help have that encouragement to follow through. So he's sitting here saying, I know you're going to do this, but I'm going to send the brethren anyway. We're going to send Titus and remember the other two brothers that you picked out from the churches. So if there was a something in your mind that, I don't think we can going to collect this money because I'm not sure Paul has his right intentions with that money. Well, is he really going to deliver it to Jerusalem? Or what happens if we collect this money and we lose it because we don't have control over it? Because we want to have control and a say what goes on with our money down in Jerusalem. 
But if you notice, as we studied last week and this week, some of those excuses were taken away, weren't they not? One is that Titus was a trusted brother. Everyone in the, all the churches there knew him and trusted him. So that helped take an excuse away. Then each of those brothers, that we, we're not positive who they are. We've got a pretty good sense of maybe who they are. But they picked, the churches picked them. So now they did have a representative who will go with the money to deliver it and to have it ministered the way it was intended and being delivered to the, the saints there in Jerusalem. They weren't going to be bought. Uh, uh, they weren't going to buy a, a fleet of camels uh, for the ministry so that they can take the money. But whatever little bunny is left after buying the camels, no, no, they didn't do that. They didn't have a huge administrative fee because Paul needed to have a good bonus that year in the fact that he was traveling and doing a hard work of collecting this money. No, that that took that excuse away. Paul, matter of fact, didn't want anything to do with it. He sent Titus and these other two brothers down there because they wanted to make sure that confidently that they were going to come down and encourage or if not help collect that money for it so it would be prepared before even Paul got there. But he says, I'm going to send him down just so that you're ready, not just willing, but ready. There's a follow-through piece of this. Because I've been telling the Macedonians, you are the church, man. You are going to follow through. You're going to do this. But he says, but make sure you follow through with this. Because this boasting I've been doing, this just talking you up because how faithful you are with God and how much you love God and how God has blessed you as a church, you don't want me nor you to look bad. You, you say one thing, but then you don't do it. And that's not like they have, there was a roadblock here. They just did not want to do it. And Paul says, no, you, that's, that's not good. We should be ashamed of this confident boasting. It, it, it became useless or pointless of everything I was telling people what God was doing in your life. It becomes pointless and useless. It's like giving or it's like serving. God, watch what you're doing in that person's life. They're serving you. And you tell other people, man, God is just on fire. He's just using that guy, that gal, really incredible in the ministry. And you tell other people about the work that God is doing through them. But then if they don't follow through with what they said they're going to do, it really doesn't look good. And we need to follow through and let our yes be our yes and our no be our no. The only reason why we shouldn't be able to do something is because God has closed that door or God has redirected the footsteps and let God do that, and everyone will know clearly that God is redirecting, not just because we are not willing or willing or ready or to do the work that it takes to follow through. 
he continues here in verse 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort you, to encourage you, the brethren, to go to, to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a ma matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So he makes it even clear here, part. He says, I'm sending them to help you be ready, to encourage you, because what I don't want to have happen is when I get there and my presence of who I am, Paul, sits there and you grudgingly collect the money to give. Because you will feel like it's over an obligation and you'll be grudgingly obligated to follow through, not because you were truly willing and ready to follow through. You'll be doing it because of me, not because you love your Lord. That's when you know you're grudging, is because your heart is not right. You grudgingly do it because your heart is not right, because you're not doing it to serve your Lord. You're doing it because you are choosing to serve or not serve. Or in this case, your eyes are on man and not on God. And when we give, and when we serve, and when we witness, and when we do things, it is always with the eyes on our Lord, not on man, not on a system, not on an organization. It is on serving and worshiping our Lord with our giving. That is the grace of giving. And there's a difference. And so he says, so that obviously the first factor that we saw is the willingness and enthusiasm, verses in 1 and 2. But here in verse 5 we see, and th even, yeah, even 3, 4, 5 here, is the generosity attitude. That attitude of freely and lovingly giving and not reluctantly and resentfully giving. That's why we do not tell you what you to give. We don't collect the tithe. You freely give that. We don't tell you what you have to give and how much to give and when you give. You, it's between you and the Lord and you're worshiping him and you freely give and you do not do it out of any reluctancy, any resentment or this, this, this grudging obligation because God doesn't need your money. He gave you the money in the first place. Now the question is, are you going to die yourself and are you willing to be obedient to do what he's called you to do in regards to giving back to him the first fruits? And so if you're grudging in your giving, that's an issue between you and the Lord you're going to have to work out. You're going to have to get that settled. God is not going to let that go because he is in the job of refining you. <laughs> he started a good work in you, and he's faithful to complete that work in you. And in around this, he uses giving as one of those ways to, to refine you. Because here, obviously, they needed to be refined, these Corinthian Christians. Because they had promised one year prior. They were going to give a generous gift. Can you imagine Paul getting to Macedonians? You won't believe what the Christians there in Corinth told me. They're going to give a generous gift to help the Jewish believers there. Can you, this is awesome. Praise God, right? And that stirred them up to give too. But notice nowhere in this conversation here, Paul did not tell them how much they had to promise. 
But he did expect them to keep their promise of giving generously. That's why he said, therefore. We, we too, as a factor, when we give, we give with a heart of generosity. Because God himself never gives us an attitude of grudgingly, with some obligation to give to us. And neither should we. So if God doesn't grudgingly give to us, that he generously, lovingly gives, so too our, should our attitude be and a willing attitude from us as a giver. Because high-pressure offering requests is not the grace of giving. Manipulation through some creative, clever way to inspire you to give is not the grace of giving. The grace of giving is God putting on your heart and you just being obedient to what he has provided to you and you freely give with enthusiasm and with generosity. Now we see here in verse 6, he is not only the fact that your giving will provoke others or to stimulate or to inspire others to give. We see that in first five verses. But we see the fact that in verse 6, that your giving will bless you and others. This is right here. But this I say, <coughs> and these next two verses are absolutely key to this whole subject of giving in chapters 8 and 9. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. See, God's ways are not our ways, and our ways are not God's ways, right? His thoughts are way above our thoughts. So when, when we try to put God in some box and think this is how God will, be very careful, right? Because there's a thing called physical law, right? You know the physics aspect of things like the law of gravity, the law of inertia, the law of thermodynamics. You know these laws, and you can. And there's people today will try to say the law of gravity doesn't apply to me. I'm going to overcome that law, and I'm going to prove I can overcome the law of gravity. But for a time, you might. But eventually, what's going to happen? the law is going to have its way. God has put those laws in place, and, and you're not going to overcome that. So, so just because you self-talked yourself that as you walk to the edge of a building and you say, as I take a step off this building, I'm going to overcome the you know, positive talk. I'm going to overcome the gravity, overcome the gravity. I'm going to... No, no, no. You're going down. All the way, as you say it, you would go all the way down to the ground, I assure you. But there's also spiritual laws, and this is one of them. And that is the fact that you will reap what you sow. Whatever you give, that's what you'll give in return. Now, Luke 6.38 says it really clearly. Give, and it will be given to you. How? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running 
over will be put into your bosom, into you, right? For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So what you sow, you shall reap. If you, if you give grudgingly, think about how that's going to reap. If you give sparingly, well, then expect sparingly of money coming into you. If you give bountifully, you will reap bountifully. It's, the, it's just the farmer sowing the seed here. The farmer sowing the seed may feel he's going to lose seeds. So he comes down, he's very careful, very controlled, and he just wants to put seed only where he wants to be, and he just... Just a little bit because I don't want to give it all out because I'll, I'm going to keep my barn really, really full. I want a big barn. So if I give a, a little bit of seed, I could, grow, I, could, I could build a bigger barn. And I can have a, another barn. And I can add. Because, and then everyone will look at me and go, oh, you got not one barn, but you got two barns. And they're full of seed. But eventually what you have to understand is you will reap what you sow. Because if you do not sow, what kind of harvest are you going to receive in due time? Well, it's very clear. If you don't sow, you will not get a harvest. And if you don't get a good harvest, how are you going to put more into your barns to keep some in the barn? I mean, there is a barn. You do keep and you're good, wise, because the next season, what do you have to do? Take some of the seed out and plant it to make another harvest. So we have to see here, as, as, as Paul uses this very clear, simple spiritual law, that even though the farmer may feel like he's losing out on the seed, and he's planting something, and he has fear, uh-oh, what happens if it's not a good season, and we're not going to get a good crop, or what happens if the birds get in, or whatever? All these what-ifs. But a farmer can't do that, can he? Yes, he uses wisdom. He uses it. He doesn't throw a seed on just rock knowing that it's not going to produce anything. He doesn't take seed and give it to the birds and not even plant it. He doesn't do that. He puts it in the ground and tills it and knows this is good fertile ground and he plants the seed and he doesn't do it sparingly he makes sure it's there because he says the more i sow the more i will reap it's good it's right but many times the farmer or the giver wants too much control or doesn't want to doesn't it goes by sight and not by faith and what happens is they will not receive the harvest or the benefit. Now, what kind of benefits are we talking about? Well, we will reap blessings both materially and spiritually, we see in the scripture. Materially, we can trust that God will provide for the giving heart. The promise we see, we can see in Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He's going to provide for his people. The Philippians were a very giving, generous, loving church that gave and gave, we say. And so what did they reap? They sowed materially, gave, 
they reaped materially as well. Spiritually, we can trust that God will reward the giving heart both now and in eternity. And Jesus spoke to this, we see in Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. He's not saying that you're leaving them. He's saying they no longer become a higher priority than me. You're not giving because your mom told you, not because your dad demands it, not because some system tells you you have to, but because you give it to the Lord, you will reap spiritually. Because you've put him number one in your life. And with giving, I have found it's one of the biggest things within couples in the, in, in the church is that one is growing and maturing in their faith. They, they are surrendered their life to Christ, and they are willing to give. But the other one, the spouse, is not maturing. They're not growing at the same. They're not where they need to be. And what happens is they will hinder the other one to give. We can't give that money. What is the church going to do with that money? Well, I don't know. That, that, was a, that's, that coffee's pretty fancy. Is that what they're spending my money on? It goes on and on and on. I want to encourage you. Continue to pray that God will continue to do a work in that individual, your spouse, so that they will mature and grow and understand how to give by the grace of giving because they give to the Lord. It's the Lord using that money for his work and purpose and that God will not, the enemy and their immaturity and their faith will not hinder the blessing that God wants to give you and your family. Because I'm telling you, God wants to bless you materially and spiritually. Whatever that may be. And it differs. God makes those decisions, not us. But that is not the primary reason why you give. You don't give because you're looking for, you know, more money. Just know that there's a blessing that comes with security in Christ when you give faithfully according to God's leading. He will provide for your needs and for his purpose in your life. Because giving reveals that purposes in your own heart. It reveals your heart. So we see here in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we see a third factor. Not only are you willing, enthusiastic, generously giving, but you're cheerful in giving. There's a, there's a joy to serve your Lord. There's a joy to worship God. And there's a cheerfulness that will come from one's life who gives. When you give, there's a cheerfulness that will be developed, that will be a fruit, that will come, of that joy that will come from one's life. And notice he says, giving is for each one. I don't give, my wife does that. 
well, do you, do you guys agree upon? Do you understand what are you doing together as oneness there? My parents give. I don't have a raw obligation as a, one of their grown-up uh, kids. I don't have, you know, yeah, I might be 20, 30, 40, 50, but my parents still give to the church. Now, each one, according to the purpose on their heart. God puts that purpose in your heart. And you do it not grudgingly, not out of coercion, out of necessity, because I'm being told I have to, but for God loves a joyful, a cheerful giver. See, Jesus said, said it very simply. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. Because you first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. That's verse 22. See, it's very simple. God says, just devote your life to me, and everything I give you, your time, your money, your resources, whatever, just seek after me and let me, watch me use it so wisely so purposefully that it is going to, what you sow, that I ask you to sow, is going to reap and create a generous harvest back to you in your spiritual and material life. But you have to do it in a cheerful way. Because true giving comes from a joyful heart. And it gives, and that when you give cheerfully, it will also gives us a happy heart it will produce something good in your life. It, but you can also give in a very bad way. If you go and don't do it with the right heart that we talked about, you can also have consequences. You know Sapphira and Ananias, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Those are perfect examples of people coming in and giving with the wrong heart, with the wrong motive. And look at the consequences of that couple. They didn't have to do it, but their heart wasn't right. Because God is the ultimate cheerful giver, is he not? And he delights to give to his children. And if we can't give joyfully, then we must open our hearts to the Lord and ask him to grant us his grace and then watch in due time, in due season, God will reveal to you and direct your steps. Because we want to have that grace of giving. We want God's blessing. In verse 8, and God is able. Regardless of your finances today, God is able. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you... Having, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And then he quotes out of Psalm uh, 112.9, he says, As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. So, Paul says and makes it clear to the people here who are reading this that a fourth factor, that as you grow and mature, your Christian character 
one's character will be built up and will respond to good works. That God is going to provide all the sufficiency, all that is needed to do a good work that he's put on your heart to do. To be part of what God is doing. God taught that even the smallest gift, if given with the right heart, would not go without reward. Those two mites that that widow gave, as small as it was, was greatly rewarded to her. Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of his disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall no, by no means lose his reward. The giving of a cup of water. Because the Lord was directing you to give that cup of water. You will not lose out and reap that reward that the Lord is going to give you. Because it's with the right heart. But God gives and rewards based on his grace. Materially, God may bless our giving by promotions with a better pay. He may have unexpectedly give gifts of money to you from another source. Or by making things last so we don't suffer the cost of replacing them. Things last longer than normally. And we, my family, we can testify to that. That we look around and we say, oh my gosh, these, we've had these things for over 26, 27, 28, 30 years. We've had these things and they're still in, in great condition. There's no reason to replace these things. Look at what he did with his people in the, in the desert for 40 years. Things were not wearing out. That means if you're not wearing out, there's no need to replace. That means you're not spending money. And that means you have more what? Money in the bank that you didn't have to unnecessarily spend. I remember, God, we faithfully gave to the church and we were praying, oh, God, we need a, uh, I need a job. I need a job closer to be able to serve you more. And I just, I, and, and we made a decision. We were going to homeschool the girls. They were young. And God literally, miraculously, not only prayed, not only provided for us, we never stopped giving. And God faithfully gave and replaced the amount of money I was going to lose with a job, and that it was closer, almost like just a few miles from the church, because he knew he was going to use us in the ministry. But we never stopped, even though financially it was like, how is this going to happen? But I got a job, I got a promotion. The amount of money that, when Kathleen came home to homeschool, the amount of money in that promotion was exactly almost the penny that we lost with her income coming home to, to raise the girls in homeschool, to a penny. A few months prior to that, we had not even seen any remote possibility how this was going to work out. And then within a short period of time, all of that got orchestrated and God took care of it. But we did not change our heart in serving and giving to our Lord as he asked us to do. He is faithful materially to provide. Spiritually, God may bless our giving by freely, 
by freeing our hearts from the bondage of greed and materialism. By giving us a sense of blessing and happiness and by restoring up <clears throat> rich reward in heaven. There is no end to the ways we can be blessed by God because God is able to make all grace abound toward us. Do you believe that? With all sufficiency and all things. The word here of sufficiency is also we can see in the same language there in the Greek of contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, that same word is there. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Same word, efficiency in the Greek. God gives a special gift to the giving heart, always all contentment in all things. You'll be so content. That's when you know you're giving the grace of giving. It's a content heart. Verse nine, or 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food and supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything with, for all liberty, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So now we see he who supplies the seed, God who gives the money to the sower, to you and I, to go out. He also directs us as the sower. And the bread the food, for the food that he gives us, the, the practical food that he gives us, supply and multiply that seed, that money you have sown. He's, you can see it very clearly that God is faithful in, in doing what he's doing. And you'll see an increase in the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything. As you give generously, cheerfully, willingly, and look at what it causes. It causes, in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, it causes thanksgiving through us to God. It would just cause us to be thankful. It causes us just to so say, God, you're so, I'm so thankful for what you've done for our family and how you've provided. God, I'm so thankful for what you've done in this church and how you've provided for this church. It brings thankfulness to your heart. That's the fifth factor. The grace of giving, it brings thankfulness. The grace of giving will be this thankfulness of worship to God and be so thankful. Paul here recognizes God has is the great supplier. And whatever we have to give was first given to us by God. And we have to always remember that. And he will supply the resources to those Corinthian Christians. And overcome any doubts or issues or whatever's causing him. And in the same time, will multiply. He even gives this blessing, this promise that those fruits of, of your righteousness, the giving of that you provide, you give a harvest, the fruits of your righteousness, it's going to be produced. Because you're not holding it back. You're not holding the, the seed, the money that he's given you for your own lavish, rich lifestyle. You give it out liberally to those, generously and with thankfulness to those and for the purpose of God's work. And then we see here in verses 12 through 15, we see some more what happens when you are giving. It says, for the administration of these services... 
delivering these relief funds down to the Jerusalem believers, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So Paul says here, as we go out and minister and, and deliver this, these relief funds, this, this money to these believers in Jerusalem, when they receive it, it's going to cause them what? Just abound in thanksgiving to God. Imagine you're starving. Imagine you have nothing. You, you're being persecuted for your faith down in Jerusalem. You have, you're, suffering, you're suffering tremendously. And then all of a sudden, your brothers and sisters from Greece come, the three guys show up, with, and how many other people show up, and said, here's from your brothers and sisters from Macedonia and Achaia. What do you think is going to happen? You're sitting there, and it's, and it's Thanksgiving, and you have no money. You don't have even a meal to have a Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden, your brothers show up at your doorstep and knock at the door, and you open up and say, hey, this is from, some, from the brothers and sisters from the church. We want you to have a Thanksgiving, and here's all the trimmings, and here's all the food, and here's whatever. It's some additional money for you to go out and buy whatever you need. Have a great Thanksgiving. What would you do? Oh, it's about time and shut and slam the door? Is that how you would respond? You'd be just like the Jerusalem believers. Thank God he has provided abundantly. You would thank God for those people. Those people in Jerusalem would be praying for those believers in Greece area, would be praying for them daily, would they not? Every time they took a bite of that food or had the money to buy food, they would say, God bless those, my brothers and sisters up in Greece. Would they not? Well, Paul made it clear, yes, many thanksgivings to God. And it will be the proof that these believers are not just talk. It will be proof that they are truly serving their Lord and doing and being obedient and their giving, their grace of giving, would be proof of their relationship with God. They can literally call themselves Christians. Because he says, Paul says, it'll be proof of this ministry, this ministering of these gifts of money to you in your need. And they will glorify God. They will confess that, yes, they, they truly are living the gospel of Christ. Christ gave us so much. Look at how they responded by giving others much. It's a response to your true relationship with Christ. And not only that, in verse 14, by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Do you see and do you, do you notice? We know in Romans 15, 26, that the Corinthians finished well they actually followed through they didn't take that collection they did give it to titus and and the guys in paul and they did deliver that to the jerusalem believers they followed through with it 
And they sent that gift to them. But notice, look at these, these, these specific things that resulted in the ministry of following through. Not only supplies the needs of the saints. That's the first all and the most practical level. The giving of the, Christian, uh, the Corinthian Christians will supply the needs of the saints. Your giving will meet needs. When you give to the church, that we distribute, we administer through this ministry to others in need. They are, uh, that the needs will be met. Your needs will be met. Secondly, we see many thanksgivings to God. These gifts will cause thanksgiving to God. They will, were given more than money for food. They were giving people a reason to thank God. So when you give, it will cause or will be given, will give a, it will glorify God when you give. Thirdly, we see the obedience of your confession. The giving of the Corinthian Christians was evidence of God's work in their life. And when those in need received the gift, they would glorify God because they recognized that these Corinthian Christians were being obedient of their confession of the fact that they have a relationship with Christ and they were willing to follow through and do what God is doing through their life. There's a result. It makes it very clear. When someone gives, is a good, clear indication, as Paul says, of their relationship with Christ. And if a person does not have a generous heart, does not give, there's a sense in which they are not obedient to the confession of the gospel of Christ, Paul says. But God is doing a work in the Corinthian Christian's heart. Stimulated them was tremendous zeal to go and collect that money. And they followed through with it. Even if they were one year later, they did follow through. This liberal sharing that he references here at the end is a key word that you and I know. In the Greek, it's called koinonia. And there's three types of koinonia in, in, in a broad spec. The word here uh, in the ideas of, uh, of sharing is koinonia. We share our resources so none would be destitute or without need. And you can share, and that is called koinonia with someone. You can sit down and you can share your life with others. And that is called koinonia as well. It's called fellowship when you share with what's going on in your life with one another. And there's also a, a, a sharing of remembrance of Jesus' work for us through the, the Lord's Supper we call communion. So when we go to the communion table today, it is koinonia. It's a fellowship. It's a oneness with Christ and with one another. But that's what liberal sharing is. It's koinonia. It is giving to those in need. And then fourthly, we see, by their giving, it results in people wanting, desiring to pray for you. But I don't know about you, but I am so blessed to know that people pray for you. It is amazing to get an email or to get a letter from someone you don't even know or someone you do know that's from a fellowship from on the other side of the country or outside the world, or down in Puerto Rico, and says, 
I'm praying for your, for the church there in the North Country. Amazing. I listened to the teaching. I was blessed. I'm praying for you guys up there in the North Country. You're negative 20. I hope everyone's okay. We're praying for you guys up there in the church in the North Country. That's amazing to me. That as you, we give, there's prayers coming back to us. We reap what we sow. What a blessing. And what it causes is our giving will unite God's people. When you give, it unites God's people. And finally, and here's the reason why we ultimately give, the, the grace of giving, is that Paul says, thanks be to God for his in, indescribable gift. Indescribable. What is that indescribable gift? It is Jesus Christ himself and salvation. Some think it's just the gift of salvation. Others think it's a gift of Jesus Christ. But I believe it is both. Salvation is given to us in Jesus Christ. That is the indescribable gift. Because can you really describe the grace of God in your life? That he has forgiven you completely of your sin? And you did not earn it because you can't earn it? Because if you can earn it, it's called taxation. It's something else. It's not grace. It's not a gift. If you sit there and say, oh, look at this gift, and then you turn around and say, and I paid him 1095 for it. That wasn't a gift. If you sit there and say, oh, I have the gift of salvation, but then you, then you turn around and say, but I pray this much, and I go to church every Sunday, and I give to the church, and I do. That's not, that's not a gift. You believed you earned it, and you worked for it. No, the indescribable gift is you were given something that is invaluable and you can't even describe how it's changed your life. Oh, we try. But as you ponder on the grace of God and you really understand the grace of God, you and I can't even describe the free gift he's given us of salvation. He's given himself to us. And that's what Paul says here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the indescribable gift for you and I. And all we need to do is believe trust by faith in Jesus Christ alone and we will have eternal life that is amazing grace